Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Iraqis likened Emma Skye to the early 20th century British adventurer Gertrude Bell, one of the architects of modern Iraq. She is a formidable internationalist with experience spanning the fields of development, diplomacy and defence. As a civilian and staunch opponent of the invasion of Iraq, she later became political advisor to US General Ray Odierno in that country. Her book, The Unravelling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq, was shortlisted for the prestigious Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction and the Orwell Prize. It fathoms Middle East politics and the rise of the self-styled Islamic State and sheds light on the difficulties of navigating a decidedly foreign land. Emma is in conversation with Simon Wilson in a session supported by Westpac. We hope you enjoy this session. Tenakotu. I'm Simon Wilson, and welcome to this session with Emily Skye, which is made possible with generous support from Westpac. I know the session already has a name, The Unraveling, which is the title of Emma's extraordinary book, Uh, But I like to think of it as having another name as well, in honour of Paul Bowles, the American composer who wrote a novel about getting lost and found in the deserts of North Africa. I'm calling this The Sheltering Sky. In 2003, when the coalition invasion of Iraq was well underway, Emma Skye answered a call for people to go to that country to help. She went because she wanted to apologise to the Iraqi people, and somehow... She found herself in a senior political advisory role in Kirkuk, a city in the north of Iraq important to Arab Iraqis and Turkmen and Kurdish Iraqis. She was working for the U.S. Army. They liked her, and more than that, they respected her, and so, it turned out, did many of the local leaders she worked among. Emma Skye, many of them called her Emma Skye, one word, rose in influence and prestige. She worked for generals. Eventually, she went home to England, but everything in her life was basically sawdust. Then she was asked to go back, this time in 2007, at the time of the surge, to be the political advisor to the top military official in Iraq, the U.S. Army's General Ray Odierno, a bullet-headed bear of a man to whom it was anathema to question either the honor of his country or the necessity of the U.S. military operation in Iraq. Ray Odierno was the very essence of what Emma Skye used to think she was opposed to. Yet, by the time she had finished advising General O in 2010, she respected him so much, she dedicated her book to him. She got him to read the proofs. Today, Emma teaches at Yale. You know, you couldn't make this shit up. I told... (laughs) I told British playwright David Hare yesterday that if he put Emma Sky in a play, nobody would think she was credible. And yet, here she is. He actually told me that he had put her in a play already. <laughs> in his one-hander Via Dolorosa, which is a true account of a trip he made to Israel and the Palestinian territories, he meets two British women in a hostel. He changed the names. But one of them was Emma Sky. You see... There is nobody in the whole world who, sooner or later, does not come to the Auckland Writers' Festival. (laughs) And I confess I have my own fantasy about Emma Skye. 
It's kind of an action-adventure fantasy, a movie perhaps to be called The League of International Gentlewomen, something like that, in which characters like you, Emma, and Helen Clark, and Ong Sang Suu Kyi, you know, all the greats, they solve all the problems of the world. <laughs> And what? You're going to tell me life's not like that, aren't you? You're going to say you start with ideals, and if you get lucky, you get the opportunity to take a few small practical steps. And to take even those steps, you have to be really good at what you do. So I wonder if you could start by telling us about those first steps. Before Iraq, you were already in love with the Middle East. Well, Simon, thank you for that wonderful introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. When I left school, I went off to Israel. I was on a kibbutz. And so my life consisted of getting up each morning, milking cows, and every evening sitting around a campfire, discussing the meaning of life with volunteers from all over the world. And we used to listen all the time to this radio station called The Voice of Peace. And it used to chant out all the time, no more war, no more bloodshed. So I had become indoctrinated through my time on a kibbutz, and I left, and I believed I was humanist, and I would dedicate my life to trying to help bring about peace in the world. When you're young, you know, you're looking for significance in some way or other, Mm. and I thought, that's what I will try and do. And I went to university, I went to Oxford to study classics, and when I was there, the first intifada broke out. And I thought, I'm going to change degree, I'm going to study about the Middle East, I'll study Arabic and Hebrew, and I will just do whatever I can to try and help with peace. And also, while I was a student, it was the first Gulf War, and I was on all the anti-war demonstrations, and I signed up to be Human Shield. So that was, you know, I didn't really have many skills at that stage, so I thought that's something I can do to try and stop war. And then 2003, you went to Iraq. You write, I was excited to be heading back to the Middle East. I loved waking to the call of prayer shopping in the markets, inhaling the smell of coffee, and sharing plates of food with complete strangers who were always so warm and hospitable. But it's not entirely clear from the book how you got in with the U.S. Army. (laughs) Well, you know, this email had gone out from the British government saying we want volunteers to go to Iraq for three months to administer the country. And I thought this is my chance to go and apologize. I'd spent a decade in Israel-Palestine, so helping build up institutions of the Palestinian Authority and promoting relations between Israelis and Palestinians. So I thought I've actually got some skills. But the British government didn't tell me what my job was going to be. They just said, get to RAF Bryce Norton, jump on the plane to Basra, you'll be met by somebody holding a sign with your name on it and taken to the nearest hotel. Well, it sounded plausible. I mean, <laughs> It was June 2003. The invasion had been three months prior. I assume the British government knew what they were doing, but they just had neglected to tell me. (laughs) And I didn't want to sort of kick up a fuss. So I just followed the instructions and got to Basra. And on landing, it was very clear. You know, I was there with all British soldiers, and nobody had any clue who I was or what I was doing there. So after one night sleeping in the airport, so, so hot, Everybody was stripped down to their underwear, all these soldiers. And I, of course, didn't have a mat, and I wasn't wearing appropriate underwear because I thought I was going to stay in a hotel. (laughs) So I thought, I can't stay in Basra. I went up to Baghdad and went to the palace. 
which used to be Saddam's headquarters and was now the headquarters of the Coalition Provisional Authority. And I said, you know, hello, I'm Emma from England, come to volunteer. <laughs> and, you know, I spent a week up there and they said, we've got enough people here, try the north. But they didn't say where in the north. So I found another plane, I went to Mosul. And they said, oh, we've got somebody in Mosul, keep going. <laughs> so I arrived in Kirkuk. And when I got to Kirkuk, I was told that I was now the senior civilian responsible for administering the province and reporting directly to Ambassador Bremer, who is the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, oh my God, how embarrassing. I've never, I've never run a town in my own country, <laughs> let alone a this province. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> or let alone a province in someone else's. And I realized that Iraqis took my role quite seriously because insurgents tried to assassinate me in my first week. <laughs> I mean, normally it takes a little bit longer before people want to kill me, but this was just within the first week. And so after I'd been blown up in my house, and my house was no more, I needed somewhere to stay. And I knew that there was an American brigade in the province, and so I found my way to speak to the brigade commander, and I said, you know, it's all rather awkward and embarrassing, but my house has been blown up, and any chance you might have a spare tent on the airfield, which is where the army was. So that's how I came to meet the US Army. Right. You know, <laughs> a long time ago, an English tailor called Eric Newby climbed the Hindu Kush and wrote a book called A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush, and he basically did it in his Oxford Street clothes and his normal Oxford Street shoes, and it, it's a little the same, isn't it? It's, <laughs> Kirkuk turned out to be a terrific place to be, didn't it? Because although it was uh, an extremely dangerous place, you met everybody. All the factions in Iraq, all the different ethnic groups were all there in roughly equal proportions, and therefore it was a great way for you to get acquainted. Yes, I mean, I knew nothing about Iraq or Kirkuk mm. before I arrived. And obviously, when people try and kill you very early on, you've got a lot to learn very quickly to try and work out what is happening. And so, for me, it was trying to understand who are all the different groups. I mean, Kukuk is a very multi-ethnic, multicultural society. And in the aftermath of the fall of Saddam, everybody was competing for power. Saddam had kicked out Kurds and Turkmen from the province, and... I mean, basically, he'd Arabized it. The province had a lot of oil, and he wanted to make sure there was an Arab majority in the province. And after the overthrow of the regime, the Kurds were trying to come back to the province, kick out a lot of the Arabs to Kurdify it, so it had a Kurdish majority, because they wanted to annex it to Kurdistan. Now, I knew nothing about this when I arrived. And so trying to understand that, yes, there were people attacking the coalition, but besides that, there was all this power struggle between all these different groups looking for you know, their place in the new Iraq. Um, I, I, we'll come back to the Kurds, if we can, a little later, I, I hope. Um, I just want to ask you about the American army now. David Hare's play, Stuff Happens, quotes Colin Powell, describing going to war as failure. Now, that's a soldier saying, this is what the military thinks. If we have to go to war, we have failed. Um, I don't know that he speaks for all soldiers, I'm sure he doesn't, but how common is that thinking in your experience in the US military? What I found was 
that the soldiers themselves, they don't really contemplate the decision to go to war or not. That's not their decision. That is a political decision. And they are very, you know, they're educated and they're trained to stay out of the politics. Their job is to implement the orders of their political masters. And so when I got to Iraq, you know, I'd never worked with soldiers before and I couldn't understand why anybody in their right mind would volunteer to join an army and go to the other side of the world to kill people who were no threat to them. It just didn't make sense. And I thought, well, I've got to understand them as they see themselves. And then I started to listen to them rather than projecting myself onto them, listen to them. And people, everyone I spoke to loved the army. They loved serving their country. They loved the opportunities the army provided. They got education through it. They had a whole career. They had pensions. They were well taken care of. And the army has a, you know, it has a high status in American society. But they never really spoke about the decision to go to war. That wasn't their decision. But, but the people you were among, who were senior uh, officers, uh, and, and eventually the very top officers, and extraordinarily intelligent people, very highly educated people, uh, philosophically educated people in many ways, must have thought about those bigger questions too. You would think that they would, but quite honestly, even, I mean, General Petraeus was interviewed the other day, and he was asked about the decision to go to war in 2003, and he said, I had to sign so many of those condolence letters to the parents of those who were killed. There were four and a half thousand American troops killed in Iraq. He goes, I can't possibly say, I can't comment on that. Now, others have come out publicly and commented on it, but... For the soldiers who were there on the ground, they suddenly see what their role is, and Saddam was bad, these guys good, it was all bad guys, good guys. We are the you know, sheepdogs protecting the sheep. All these language they use to describe their role. Sheepdog protecting the sheep, right. <laughs> um, your presence there was extraordinary, but you weren't the first extraordinary Englishwoman to make an impact on Iraq, were you? Can you tell us about Gertrude Bell? Well, I have to admit, I didn't really know very much about Gertrude Bell before I got to Iraq. I mean, I think everyone knows the story of Lawrence of Arabia. That's the story that people grow up with. There was the big movie about Lawrence of Arabia. But when I got to Iraq and I was in meetings with Iraqis, I could hear them talking about Miss Bell. And then I realized that they were actually referring to me. And they said, oh, you are our Miss Bell. So for them, you know, no Americans had heard of Gertrude Bell. So they didn't, Americans didn't know who the Iraqis were talking about. But for the Iraqis, it seemed quite normal that a British woman comes, lives among them, likes them, hangs out with them, and advises Nearly them. a hundred years later. Nearly a hundred years later, they remember Gertrude Bell, and they remember, she's probably the only one that they remember fondly. I mean, she created the <laughs> National Museum. And her grave, she died in Iraq, her grave is in Iraq, and her grave is tended in Iraq. So after Kirkuk was Baghdad, you got promoted, and you nearly died again, didn't you? <laughs> I did. <laughs> well, there was constantly there were things falling, so you know yeah. you don't realise how many times you nearly do die when you're there. I suppose not, but but <laughs> <laughs> you. What do you discover about yourself when you realise you've survived a rocket attack? When you know, you're you're the kind of person who can get up the next day and go to work even though the work is your work. 
Yes. I mean, people say, why didn't you go home? Mm. And it never occurred to me to go home. I told people I was going for three months. Can't suddenly go back. I mean, I, I had a job to do. I mean, I had a province to run. I had all these things to do. I mean, I was working for the British Council at the time. And when my three months was up, got this urgent email that I was needed back at work in Manchester in the north of England. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I can't go because I'm, I'm governing a province. <laughs> <laughs> and the response came, stop exaggerating and get back. <laughs> I thought, I just, I can't, I've got people to look after. I can't just leave them. But there was, you know, the British Council had asked me to write this article about what I was doing. You're helping civil society. So I wrote an article about what I was doing, and when they saw it, they absolutely gasped, and they said, we can't let anybody know that somebody in the British Council is doing this work. So it never got published. <laughs> They're probably right. <laughs> now that's the book. In America, everyone's like, thank you for your service. Yes. It's not quite the same in the UK. <laughs> My question before about you discover you're the person who can keep going, even though you've, there are people trying to kill you, really trying to kill you, and you're also living among horror, which you see. And again, you discover, I'm a person who can deal with this. But it must be hard. It must be really hard. It is extremely hard. I mean, in Iraq, particularly... You know, 03, 04, the violence wasn't at such a degree, but it got really bad by the time I went back in 2007. And every morning, there would be dead bodies in the street. Some drilled through the head, some bullets through the head, so you could tell who had killed them. And the horror, I mean, bodies in the river each day. Iraqis no longer eating fish because they said the fish had changed flavor because it was eating human bodies of the soldiers. I mean, every day there'd be a little note, another soldier's death. It was awful, really, really awful. And to be part of that is horrible. But a sense, particularly by the time we get to the surge, a sense that this was the only hope of stopping Iraq from falling off the abyss that we did have a strategy, we did have a plan, and we had leaders. And this was the best hope, so the sense that that sacrifice is necessary in order to bring down the violence. So um, let's, let's come to the surge. Um, 2000, 2004, you left. Um, you had a short holiday here, in fact. I came here actually in 2008 after the surge. Oh, I see, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 It must have been weird, though. Yeah. Well, I thought, where is the most peaceful place yes. that I could think of? And it was South Island. <laughs> that would work. That would work. <laughs> Part two of the book, The Surge, you start quoting James Elroy Flecker, who was a, a pre-First World War poet, a British poet. We are the pilgrims, master. We shall go always a little further. It may be beyond the last blue mountain barred with snow, across that angry or that glimmering sea, white on a throne or guarded in a cave. There lives a prophet who can understand why men were born. But surely we are brave. 
we who make the golden journey to Samarkand. It's terribly romantic, but this wasn't a romantic expedition for you, was it? But it's in this place of enormous romance. There's a real conflict there. Did you kind of live that? Did so that poem for me conjures up so much of young men joining the army. It's actually used as the motto for the SAS. So if you go to Hereford, those are the words on the, on the monument there. James Elroy Flecker also went to my school. And when I was at school, I didn't know about that poem. So I discovered that poem many years later in Iraq. Now, for me, the first time I went to Iraq was to apologize for the war. The second time I went was because out of the blue, this very large man, General Odierno, sent me an email saying he'd just been appointed to be commander of all U.S. forces for the surge. So he was the guy on the ground. Petraeus was his boss managing upwards. He managed the troops. And he said, will I come back to Iraq to be his political advisor? And that was not, you know, that's... I left Iraq in 04, I had gone back to Israel-Palestine for Gaza disengagement. I then served a year in Afghanistan. And then I got out of Afghanistan back in London and I got this email. And I had no romantic idea about, you know, Iraq or the Iraq war. But he was a guy who I respected, I liked. And the fact that he had reached out to ask me you know, I was a foreign civilian female to come and advise him. I thought, you know, he's asked me to do that. If he feels that something I can do to help him, then I must. And in so I went back. In the book, there's a moment when you're in a helicopter with him and you say to him, we still don't know who's killed more Iraqis, sir, you or Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and he ordered the pilots to open the doors and throw him out. <laughs> Tell us about this man. <laughs> you know, if it wasn't for the Iraq war, our paths would never have crossed. Mm. We have nothing in common. I mean, he's six foot six. He's built, he's massive. He shaves his head. He loves football, American football. You say um, that with such a sneer. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> What can I say? We really don't have mm. anything in common. And his first tour, 2003-2004, he was blamed for very hard tactics and accused of leading to the insurgency. So there was a book by Tom Ricks called Fiasco that really uses Odierno as the stereotype door-knocking American soldier. And I knew him from that period because he'd been, he'd had overall responsibility for Kirk Cook. So I had interacted with him in, the, in that period. And had got to, you know, I could see different aspects of his personality. But what had struck me was when we had chaos and all these problems going on, this was the guy who would arrive out of nowhere. He would come into the room, put his arms around us and say, how can I help? Are you okay? And you think, wow. And that sense of leadership. Because you see, when you said just now you had nothing in common, you obviously did have things in common or you couldn't have worked together and that was one of them. You both had that, I want to help. Well, 
in different ways. I mean, I'd be like, you know, it's all going to shit. This is the greatest disaster in the history of the United States. Which he didn't think, did he? Or did he think that? He would not even respond to that. He said, what are we going to do about it? We're yeah. not going to leave it that way. So I could tell him all that was wrong. And he got these massive shoulders. He could bear all of this and then say, what's the plan? What are we going to do? And presumably, the fact there's something in each of you that says, I want to work with someone who's not like me because that's possibly going to be more effective than simply standing among my own. You know, he had that, obviously, in reaching out to you, you know, mm. but you had that in yourself, didn't you? Well, they always say in all the leadership books that you should surround yourself by people who are different from you. Mm. And people never do. They always surround themselves yeah. with the mini-me's. Mm. Well, Odiano and I, you know, I am not his mini-me. I mean, I'm completely opposite to mm. him. And he said to me, he said, you've got a really different perspective. I want you to come with me wherever I go, whether it's the front line of battle or to all the meetings with the politicians. And I want to talk about the meetings beforehand. I want to talk about it afterwards. And he said, you're to tell me when I'm screwing up. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever given me that job description right. before. <laughs> Very few people get it anywhere. <laughs> no, I thought, yeah. you know, if somebody asks, that's your role? So everybody in the army is about conformity, and they bring me in, this little bit of chaos, to tell them when they're screwing up. They yeah. like the accent as well. But <laughs> yeah. It's that Hollywood thing, isn't it? It's English accents. Yeah. So 2007, the surge, 2008, there's a working, workable strategic framework, which is an agreement, a legal agreement between Iraq and America. Um, and then Obama came to Iraq in 2009, and there's a photo of him, a photo in the book of him holding your arm and General O is standing there, and he's got his hand on the back of your neck. Neither of them can get enough of you. <laughs> and you say, after the crazy era of the neocons, the US was now led by a man whose worldview I believed I shared. You believed you shared. What happened? So that photo is taken that particular moment when you know, Obama comes to Iraq, and everything has gone completely wrong for the visit. The weather is so bad that he can't go to the meetings, and everybody in the embassy is saying that there's no way he's going to meet Iraqis. And for me, there's no way that the President of the United States can come to Iraq and not get off the US military base. And so the general sends me to, you know, the embassy had said we can't do it. So the general orders me, basically, to make this visit happen by getting Iraqis onto the military base, which is kind of not a place they want to go. So, through, to cut a very long story short, miraculously, I managed to get the Iraqis to this meeting. And so, the general says to President Obama... That long story short is you rushing off into Baghdad to find them, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's, well, yes, it, it's a lot of chaos. Mm. But that's why I'm, you've got the photo of me, the general, and Obama, because the visit has all gone really, really well, and they're just really grateful. And the general says to Obama, you know, said, she has been a fan of yours for years, even before anybody had ever heard of you. And it's true, I've been reading all the Obama speeches and sending them to the general. And Obama was saying, you know, why or why? And I said, well, I was trying to make the general a liberal. And the camera captures that moment, so that's why you've got them both like, ha, ha, ha. So the hand, his hand on the back of your neck is, isn't necessarily Squeezing. friendly. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Right. So how did he view Obama? Um, the general? Yes. I mean, for again, they are so trained. The president is the commander-in-chief. And whoever is in that seat will be treated with huge respect. And when President Obama came out, that was, you know, you've got this superstar who's suddenly president. We all get to meet him. He comes out to Iraq very early on. And he was hugely impressive. He had read his brief. He was interested. And he was everything that you would hope a commander-in-chief would be. He met with the troops. He, he did right. everything. And the troops, how did they, they respond to him? Well, it's like a rock star coming to visit. Right. So yeah. <laughs> the troops were there. I mean, it was one thing we did with Stephen Colbert, who's a comedian, where this was after Obama had visited, but Colbert decides that he wants to join the U.S. Army, so he comes out on a visit. And President Obama came in through video conference to the troops, telling General Odierno to shave off Colbert's hair. <laughs> so you've got the commander-in-chief giving this order, and you've got the general there with a razor shaving off this comedian's hair. He's got a lot of hair. He did have a lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> but it happened. <laughs> March 7, 2010, the general election. That was an extraordinarily important day and an extraordinarily important election, wasn't it? Can you tell us about why it was so important? So from 2007 to 2009, with the surge, the violence in Iraq had come down dramatically. Huge, I mean, just gone dropped from horrible levels down to really low levels, low levels for Iraq. And the Iraqis felt the civil war was ended. All the indicators were going in the right direction. We felt and they felt the country was over the worst and the future would be in the right trajectory. And the turnout for the elections was huge. People who had been insurgents were now standing as candidates. People who had boycotted the election before were you know, turning out on their masses. And all the opinion polls showed they'd had enough of religious parties. They wanted to go beyond that. And a coalition came together called Iraqia that was headed by a man called Ayed Alawi. And Ayed Alawi is secular, Shia, but identifies as secular. He doesn't identify by sect. And his coalition ran on a platform of Iraq for all Iraqis, no to sectarianism. And this group went on to win the support of Iraq Sunnis, Iraq secular Shia, Iraq's minorities, and won the most seats in the elections. And this was like, wow. And that wasn't expected, was it? I mean, they, no. They, they, they well, did much better than... Was, yeah, yes. in the Middle East, the incumbent never loses an election. It just doesn't happen. And so Nouri al-Maliki sat there refusing to believe the results. He just couldn't believe he could possibly not be the winner of the election. Everyone had told him he was going to win big, and he didn't. And so he tried to change the election results. First of all, he used debathification to try and dissolve or remove the Iraqia candidates, accusing them of being members of the Ba'ath Party. He demanded a recount, even though there was no evidence of high-level fraud. He went after, he started to put pressure on the judiciary, he did all of these things. He was determined to stay in his seat. It was all about his regime's survival. And the US supported him. Well, 
There was disagreement within the U.S. system over what to do. Joe Biden came out and told you the news. <laughs> <laughs> so on the one hand, you had the general, my boss, saying the U.S. should uphold the election results, uphold the right of the winning bloc in a parliamentary system to have first go at trying to form the government. He didn't think Alawi would be able to do it with himself as prime minister, but he thought it could lead to an agreement between Alawi and Maliki to share power, or the selection of a third candidate. But the ambassador at the time, who was new to the region, new to the country, he said, Iraq's not ready for democracy. Iraq needs a sheer strong man. Maliki's our man. And so Joe Biden comes out, he hears, listens to both of these opinions, and he says, look, Maliki, Maliki will give us an agreement to keep U.S. troops in Iraq, small number, he didn't want to keep lots, but Maliki will give us a follow-on security agreement. Maliki's our man. And keeping Maliki in power, that's the quickest way to have a government in Iraq formed ahead of the U.S. midterm elections. And do you think that drove him? So do you think, this, was this an Obama decision? I mean, where was, critically, where did the, was the decision to support Maliki driven from? Was it from the White House? I think, you know, President Bush, George W. had been heavily involved in Iraq. He'd been phoning up video conferences with Iraqi leaders all the time. When President Obama took over, he was determined to treat Iraq more as a normal country. And he didn't want to be talking to the generals day in, day out. He wanted a proper chain of command through the CENTCOM and down. And he wanted to show that he was still focused on Iraq, Obviously, his first order as president was to end the war, but he put responsibility to his vice president, Joe Biden, to show that this was a special initiative. So Iraq didn't come under Hillary Clinton. She had the rest of the world, and Joe Biden had Iraq. So he did it for that reason. So we'll never know the exact truth of what happened. I expect he said, look, you know, the Iraqis, what's going on in Iraq? They've had an election. The government's not formed. Off you go, Joe. Right. Whereas that, that really became the moment where if the U.S. did have any moral authority in, in Iraq, they lost it then because they didn't uphold the democratic process. Is that a fair comment? It's, you know, when you look at these blunders in history, you always think, wasn't there anybody in the room saying it was a mistake? Now, I was in the room and I was speaking out to such a degree that even the vice president of the United States got annoyed with me. I said, you know, in a young country, when you've got a young system, you have to show people that change comes about through elections. If you don't show any change through elections, people will not believe in that process and they revert back to violence. And he said, you know, we frequently have elections in America and no change comes about. <laughs> and the more I pressed him and the more annoyed he got with me, I was trying to explain that Iraq is not just Sunni, Shia, Kurd, it's quite complex. And he turned to me and he goes, I know these people. My grandfather was Irish and he hated the British. Do you have, do you have a theory about this, that the, the extraordinary gap between a sophisticated machine run by extremely smart people and the capacity for it to make enormous blunders? Do, do you know why that happens? Have you, you've been in the room, as you said. Can you, can you explain it? <laughs> 
people get on a on a particular mind in a, in a particular mindset. It's got to be this, and they're not seeing that. Yeah. I mean, what Joe Biden's saying to you there—they're throwaway remarks, aren't they? They're not. They're but not deep sort out. But in many ways, people do look at the Middle East and they think this is to do with Sunni Shia, fourteen hundred years of conflict. Now that becomes quite a, a frequent statement by Western policymakers. I mean, it's ahistoric. You can look through history and think, well, most of the time, people have actually been peacefully coexisting. When we got to Iraq, 30% of Baghdad was intermarried. So one of the reasons that Western policymakers will say it is to absolve ourselves of any responsibility for what happened in Iraq. And another reason is to say there's nothing that we can do about it because it's preordained. Well, unless you believe there's a really, really nasty man up there who's making all these horrible things happen, then this is not preordained. This is what human beings can do. And they can do it one way or they can do it another. But Joe Biden, you know, I wished Obama had paid attention to Iraq because if there's anybody who understands the complexity of identities, it's him. And if there's anybody who understands the potential for human beings to change, it's him. Yeah. It's not Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden's a very nice man to go down the pub with, but not when you're trying to negotiate the formation of a government in Iraq. General O said, my greatest fear is that we stabilize Iraq and then hand it over to the Iranians in our rush to the exit. What, is, what, is Iran, what are Iran's political objectives in relation to Iraq? Well, his greatest fear came true. Yes. And so for Iran, Iran, Iraq have fought this awful, bloody war in the 80s. A million people were killed in that war. Awful. And at some level, Iran wants revenge for that war on Iraq. It wants to make sure that Iraq is not a strong nation state. It wants to make sure that Iraqi nationalism doesn't revive itself. So for Iran, it wants to perpetuate this Sunni-Shia-Kurd division because it keeps the country weak. And ironically, that's <laughs> Joe Biden unintentionally sees the country in the same way. So through this mess up in 2010, when the US was trying to, or Biden was trying to keep Maliki in power and couldn't because none of the US allies wanted Maliki, the Iranians stepped into the void. And at this stage, their influence was very low because America had received credit for the surge. But the Iranians saw their opportunity and they thought, we also, let's keep Maliki as prime minister because nobody in the region likes Maliki and that will prevent Iraq from being integrated into the Arab world. And they put pressure on the Sadrists, Muqtad al-Sadr's group, which it's a Shia group that is very, very anti-American, very hostile to the US also hated Maliki, but the Iranians put so much pressure on Muqtada to change his opinion, and the deal was all US troops will be withdrawn from Iraq at the end of 2011, and the Sadrists will get key positions. So what basically happened was that Iran brokered the deal to make Maliki prime minister for the second term, and as soon as Maliki was securing his seat, he went after the Sunni politicians, accusing them of terrorism, driving them out of the political process. He reneged on his promises to those tribal leaders, the Sunni awakening, who, with the support of the US military, had crushed Al-Qaeda. So he arrested them, 
killed some, drove others out of the country. And then he arrested Sunnis en masse. And this led to Sunni protests. And he sent in the security forces to crush them violently. And in such an environment, it created the conditions for the Islamic State to rise up out of the ashes of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And these tribal leaders basically looked at the Islamic State and they looked at Maliki's Iranian-backed sectarian regime and they determined that the Islamic State was the lesser of two evils. And that's how the Islamic State took over a third of the country in months. And Islamic State is the measure of the failure, isn't it? Islamic State is a symptom of broken politics, failed governance, a collapsing state. It's a symptom. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, sexism. In the book, you're, you're relatively blind to it. You, you don't acknowledge much misogyny around you, and I don't know whether that's because you didn't see any or there wasn't any, but it is it's something you don't kind of really address. You, you don't talk much about women soldiers, except there are some senior women intelligence officials. Um, but did you among Americans, but also among Iraqis, was it hard? Again, I think, you know, you asked me about my threshold for coping with risk and violence, so I obviously have a high threshold there. But, you know, I was the only girl in an all-boys boarding school in Britain. So my... <laughs> this was nothing. This was nothing. <laughs> if you want to talk about misogyny, brutality, <laughs> torture a bullying of a completely different scale. I went through it as a kid. And so, <laughs> you know, when I met Colin Powell, he arrived in Kirkuk, and he said, I've heard about you. You know, this one woman with 3,000 male paratroopers, how are you coping? And I said, it's, you know, I said, it's quite familiar. I didn't explain why. <laughs> but I said, they're much better when they're adults than they were when they were boys. <laughs> I mean, I went through Lord of the Flies experience right. as a kid. You did. There are women mentioned in the book. I mean, there's a couple of strong female characters that stand out. One is the head of military intelligence for General Odierno, Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Brooks. And, you know, there were very few women in the room, but those women in the room were so much better than the guys. So would gravitate towards Nikki because Nikki knew what she was talking about. Maliki's military advisor was a woman called Dr. Basima, who wore hijab and heels. She was a rocket scientist from Sada City. And she and I saw each other as kindred spirits. We built up a rapport. And everybody advised you against her, but you did. I mean, she's a the big way role she in the was, book. And, yeah, the way that she was described, you know, by the analysts. Yeah. She was this leader of the Shia death squads, Buddha-seer-type character. I just refused to accept that characterization. I thought, I'll make, you know, God knows how they described me. I'll make up my own mind about her. Mm. And so it took me a while to get to know her. But the end, we had, you know, we really agreed on the way ahead, and we brought the general and the prime minister together. And that helped spread the Sunni awakening in Iraq. So there are strong female characters, I think, in the book, but I don't say, ooh, and it's a woman. Yeah. Is there such a thing as a humanitarian war? You know, the 2003 war was fought based on 
premise that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction, so it was fought on the wrong premise. Now, when you look at how Saddam had treated his people, he had mass murdered Kurds. Look at the gassing in Halabja, 5,000 Kurds killed in an hour or so. After the, 19, after the invasion of Kuwait, and President Bush Sr. called for Iraqis to rise up and overthrow Saddam. The whole of the country rose up. And Saddam, with his helicopter gunships, mass-murdered, we don't know, 100,000-plus people. And the West did nothing about this, because Saddam was our man during the Iran-Iraq war. And you think, do we really want to live in a world with leaders like that? Now you look at Bashar al-Assad, 400,000 people have been mass-murdered in Syria. He is mass-murdering his own people, and we do nothing. So it is, it's a really complex question. It's very difficult. We came up with responsibility to protect, and that was used as the grounds for intervening in Libya. And so the basis of that intervention was to protect the people of Benghazi from Colonel Gaddafi. And yet, it then morphed to regime change, and then the collapse of whatever state there was in Libya, which has led to the awful situation that we see in Libya today. So these are not easy questions. I mean, you can look at Stop the War campaign in the UK. It talks about stopping Britain from doing anything. It never talks about stopping Assad from mass murdering the Syrian people. And so that sense, do we care about them, or is it just about ourselves? I don't want to live in a world where if Hitler was here today gassing, mass-murdering people, that we wouldn't, wouldn't do anything. In the book, you argue for strengthening democracy, strengthening economies. Those things are so important to uh, building peaceful societies. What's the difference between when you say that and when neocons say it? Because they say it too. What's the difference? You get these strange bedfellows. I think it came out of the it came out of the 90s, strange after the end of the Cold War. Strange bedfellows being the neocons and the liberal interventionists. And things, I suppose, came together in the Balkans. The idea that you know we know how to do these things because we did it in the Balkans. And then after 9/11, the sense that gosh, if there are any ungoverned spaces, terrorists will flourish there. Therefore, we not only know how to do it, we need to do it, all came together. So it, it are, there are strange bedfellows. Obviously, it's not, a, you know, you think we were intervention on steroids under George W. and then doing nothing under Obama, so the pendulum swung back. The legitimacy for intervention needs to be there. The Iraq war had no legitimacy. The Libyan intervention did have legitimacy, and it has ended really badly. These things are really the challenges of our times. What sort of world do we want to live in? What sort of international norms do we want to build up? And we've either got do everything or do nothing. I mean, what I learned from Iraq more than anything was it's all about their politics. If a state collapses, it becomes a Hobbesian world of all against all. It would happen here, it would happen in the US, it would happen in the UK. It's not unique to Iraq. 
So the importance of a state, competition between people, between human beings, is natural. There's always been competition. It's how that violence, or how that competition should be as non-violent as possible. And it's the framework of the state that provides that stability that allows that competition to take place. You take away the state. Iraq, we dismissed all the civil servants, we dismissed all the security institutions, and the state collapsed. So, you know, you think regime change, that, that is fraught with problems. Can we do more to make regimes be better regimes? Can we set more incentives so we don't revert back to supporting the strong man, the strong authoritarian? The strong authoritarians always said it's us or the Islamist terrorists. Saddam said it. Gaddafi said it. Is there no third alternative that we can help develop? I mean, for anyone who's been to the Middle East, the Middle East is full of wonderful people and terrible regimes. But you meet wonderful people, really wonderful young people, who want to have a future, a future in a country that kind of looks like Dubai, a future where they've got opportunities that they can live like other young people live. You're talking we. In the book, the UN almost doesn't exist. Do you, do you see a role, significant role for the UN in, in what you're talking about now? We need some revised, revived international architecture. And you think of the United Nations, all of that came about out of the horrors of the world wars. Out of the Second World War, we end up with the Convention on Refugees, the Geneva Conventions, all of our international architecture. And there has not been enough investments in that architecture America has been particularly anti that international architecture. But are we going to think that these wars, the post 9-11 wars, led to the unraveling of the Middle East, the meltdown of the European Union, the end of Pax Americana? Is that how we want to leave it? The war was a mistake. But the story doesn't have to end here, doesn't have to end now. And you know, the European Union is a very boring project, but it's been very successful, and it's stopped conflict, a lot of conflict, in Europe. And Pax Americana, it's very easy to criticize it. But when you look at America's withdrawal from the Middle East now, and you see Putin strutting the stage, you see Iran doing all this stuff, you see the Islamic State, is that a taste of a world without America playing a role? Is that the sort of world you want to live in? So you'll know that Helen Clark is standing to be uh, the next Secretary General of the UN. What would your advice to her be? <laughs> well, I mean, Helen Clark has an excellent reputation, and she's been doing very well at the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP, so she has a great reputation. I think if it was a, you know, an election for the head of the UN, she would probably win it. Unfortunately, I don't think it's the term of this region to hold the post. But if the Eastern European countries can't agree on a head, then it may come to her. It's a very, very, very difficult job because when you deal with your own country, you can see how dysfunctional it is, let alone dealing with the whole international community. But go back to the charter of the UN. Go back to the essence of what the UN was created for and bring that because it's about the ideas. It's about creating a world which is more peaceful and more just for everybody. That's what the UN 
was set up to do. And we must not lose sight of that charter. It's a beautiful right. charter. You, you, you've been in your life the embodiment, the enabler of hope for a great many people, many of whom would kill each other if they had the chance. But they might well lay down their own lives for you. And now you teach at Yale, and I'm figuring, aren't you kind of young? <laughs> there must be more. I'm, I mean, does, you'd be a good Secretary of State for Hillary Clinton, wouldn't you? <laughs> Her Henry Kissinger. My new friend, Henry Kissinger. Um, I don't think my story ends at Yale. I mean, Yale has been wonderful for me. When I left Iraq with the general, you know, I had no job, I had no income, I had no idea what I was going to do. And, you know, when you come back to the UK, it's not sort of, you know, the flags aren't waving, it's, <laughs> it's not a great reception. Um, and Yale reached out and said, come and teach at Yale. So teaching there, teaching wonderful students, has been very therapeutic. They wanted to hear about my stories. And so it got me to talk about what I'd been through, mm. and it provided me with the headspace to write. But they're like, you know, professor, you should be back out there doing stuff. What are you doing here with us? So I don't know what my next chapter is. Another part of me wonders whether you're tempted by some kind of idea like going to work for Vladimir Putin or Jacob Zuma. <laughs> going to work for someone who needs good people. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> like Vladimir, you are very handsome, you are yeah, very yeah, yeah, fit. Yeah, yeah. Have you thought perhaps <laughs> of doing something different? I could try it. <laughs> You know, some people are up for big challenges and some people are up for really big challenges. Emma's <laughs> got to be the latter. We are going to take questions, so if we could have the lights up, thanks. Um, and there will be some microphones, and um, if you position yourself by a microphone, um, we'll call to you. But while that's happening, Emma, simple little question here. What's on the 10-year horizon in the Middle East? 10 years. Sooner or later, the Middle East will hit rock bottom. And it's going to hit rock bottom in those 10 years. That means after that, things have to start improving again. Wars do end. What's been set off now is something that's got a way to play out. Because the Iraq war and the way in which we left Iraq changed the balance of power in the region in Iran's favor. So you can see this massive competition between Iran and Saudi some stage that has got to get back into balance and whether the US the new administration helps create a better balance remains to be seen we're also going to have in the Middle East acute effects of climate change we're going to have potentially the collapse of the oil market as the world moves away from using oil extreme water shortages corrupt regimes digging in people rising up too it's Whatever's hard in the Middle East now is going to get a lot harder, isn't it? It is, but the whole nature of the economy, this rentier state where you've got people... I mean, basically, the government doesn't live off the taxes of its people. It li lives off this easy rent from oil. The collapse of the oil price, Saudi will be out of oil within about 20 years, necessitates the diversification of the economy. 
that could lead to a new social contract between citizens and the regimes. It's not going to be easy, but some of these regimes are well aware of it, and they're starting already to prepare for it. So it's going to be a really, really horrible, difficult period. I don't see it, Middle East sorting itself out in my lifetime. Or perhaps in anyone's. <laughs> now, we are nearly out of time, and I apologise that we've got so late and there are, there are several people who would like to ask questions, but I wonder if it would be okay with the room that instead of taking any more questions, we asked Emma to read just a little piece from the book. Thank you. I'm sorry to those people who were queuing to ask. Start okay. there and read to the dancer. We drove. Okay? Yes, we can. Thank you. This is the hardback cover because I didn't want my face on the front. <laughs> <laughs> In case anybody recognised me. Um, we drove through the lush fields and then started to head up into the mountains to the area known as Ahmedawa. The road became a narrow track as we continued to climb up and up with pomegranate trees and the running river below us. We parked the cars, walked up to the waterfall, and then climbed further up the mountain. It was a beautiful day, and the scenery was stunning. When we turned around to go back, we saw a man with a stick silhouetted on the edge of the hill. We raised our arms above our heads as if cheering. He did the same. We laughed. Our hearts were filled with the joy of nature, the happiness of being alive. The next day, we went to Karadag. Aram explained that the Kurds had taken refuge in villages very close to the mountains, as they were difficult to bomb from the air. He pointed out the places that used to be so familiar to him. Here was his house. Here was the bunker which they used to hide in. Here was his bedroom. Over there was the bakery. Saddam's forces had razed everything to the ground, but the bunker and trees still remained. Aram and his brother Alan used to keep dogs there. The German shepherd they had got from Baghdad had had puppies. One day they had been busy shampooing the puppies in the bathroom when two Iranian guests walked in to wash before prayers. They still laughed as they remembered the horror on the faces of the Iranians who considered dogs to be unclean. The Iranian guests happened to be Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and Muhammad Ali Jafari, who would later become, respectively, president of Iran and commander of Iran's Revolutionary Guards. They had come to provide support for the PUK in their fight against Saddam and had lived with them for a month or so. Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the Al-Quds force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, had been in a neighboring village. We drove back to Suleimania to watch the sunset from the top of Mount Goiza. We drank wine and listened to Kurdish music and I joined eight Kurdish men dancing under the stars. I was witnessing the resurrection of the Kurdish people. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.